Oh, I am excited about this weekend, and thank you at all of our campuses, all of our different locations and congregations for uh, being in worship on this great 4th of July weekend. Hey, let me ask you a little question. Would you agree, those of you who have experienced marriage, or maybe you're currently married or have been, would you agree with me that sometimes marriage can be a bit difficult. I'm going to ask for a show of hands on this. And, and listen, if you're sitting beside someone you're married to or about to get married to, I know this could be dangerous, okay, to raise your hand. So hold the elbows, please. But would you just raise your hand up real high if you would just agree with that basic statement. Wow, hundreds of hands. I hear you loud and clear. Somebody said that there are three stages to marriage. The happy honeymoon... The party's over, and let's make a deal. Well, it may not be quite that bad, but I will assure you of this. Every marriage that I've ever seen runs into conflict sooner or later. There are difficulties, and the question is not, is conflict going to come? The question is, how do you navigate hard times How do you navigate the conflict once it does arrive? It will arrive. So today in this last message in this series called When Life is Tough, I want us to grapple with this very relevant, very personal topic. And I've been praying all week that God would give us a lot of insight this weekend, whatever your relational situation is, a lot of important insights into how our relationships can be far more healthy than they are. I love this letter to dear Abby. This letter describes the typical marriage that has dragged on and on, even for decades, without a healthy sense of love in it. Dear Abby, do all marriages go stale after 25 years? Ours has. My husband and I don't seem to have much to talk about, to talk to each other about anymore. We used to talk about our kids, but now they've grown and gone, and we're out of conversations. Oh, I have no major complaints, but the old excitement is gone. We watch a lot of television and read, and we do have friends, but when we're alone together, it's pretty dull. We even sleep in separate bedrooms now. Is there some way to recapture that old magic? And it's signed, The Song has ended. If you see a couple sitting out in a restaurant and they're holding hands across the table, laughing, smiling, looking happy, looking into each other's eyes, lots of conversation going on, what do you conclude? They're just dating, right? But if you see a couple sitting in a restaurant, they're sitting there not even looking at each other, bored, staring off into space, virtually no conversation as they pick away at their food. What do you conclude? They're married, right? Sometimes we need something to boost the love, to boost the health in our relationship. But what is that? I think if we were to be able to ask everybody listening to me right now and watching online as this message is live streamed, I'll bet if we took a poll, I'll bet just about everyone would agree that somewhere at the heart of that answer 
is this thing called love, right? This thing that we sing about and talk about, pray about, yearn for, long to have at the very heart of all of our family relationships. But what is that really like? And how do we make sure we can get it? There are all kinds of different views as to what the key to that kind of love really is. Somebody said love is a feeling you feel. When you feel, you're going to feel a feeling you never felt before. Somebody else said love is two hearts beating as one amid stardust. I don't have a clue what that means, but it sounds very romantic. Somebody else said love is warm fuzzies by the fireplace in the fall. I want to suggest to you today that love has three ingredients that if we give special attention to these, I believe that all of our relationships can be healthier, particularly our marital relationships will be very, very healthy if these things are attended to. So I invite you to go on the journey with me. I've intentionally not created any PowerPoint or projection this weekend because I wanted just a different experience, maybe a little more intimate or personal with you. So I invite you to go on this journey with me. The first thing I would suggest to you, if our relationships are really gonna be healthy and alive and we're gonna avoid that marital stagnation that the letter to Dear Abby talked about, We've got to understand this basic dynamic, this basic thing called commitment. Now, those of you who stood at a marriage altar, you probably said words something like this at one time or another, for better or worse, for richer or poorer. Is any of this coming back? Right? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, so long as we both shall live, maybe you said, so help me God, you made these vows, you said them, you, you made this commitment in the sight of God and all these witnesses. And that, that, those vows are a crystallization of the commitment that is at the heart of, of marriage. But see, often along the way, we forget that for better or worse part, and we have a relationship that's based solely on convenience. It's based only on the good. And so here's the, the feeling that begins to rise up. Well, you're not making me happy. Well, you're, you're being selfish. Well, I never expected that. Boy, I never dreamed in a thousand years that this is what would happen. And so we're not feeling great, and so if we're not careful, we will begin to bail out on our commitments. I think that this is an important topic for our culture, because in our culture, generally speaking, there's this notion of love that, that love is basically a feeling. I talked about this a bit last week, how that we tend to be led by our feelings, but I would say that Everything in our culture screams that love is essentially a feeling. And you can fall in of it, in it and out of it. It's just as easy as changing underwear. I mean, I'm telling you, it's just easy to fall in love and fall out of love. And that's really what it's based on. And if you're not feeling good, then hey, life's too short. You better, you better get out of there. 
I mean, just listen to the popular songs of our day. Alicia Keys sings, I keep falling in and out of love with you. The country group Sugarland sings, stuck on you, you and me, baby, we're stuck like glue. And then, of course, there's Bruno Mars, who sings, um, it's a beautiful night. We're looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. Is it the look in your eyes or is it the dancing juice? Who cares, baby? I think I want to marry you. Now, is it just me or are songs just getting more and more deep these days? I, I, I don't really know. No, no, before we pick on the modern songs, I mean, let's remember, songs have always been a bit shallow for the most part. I mean, some of you are old enough to remember the police. I mean, the police need an award for depth of lyrics sometimes. Really, really. Here's the all-time champion. Let me quote it to you. A do, do, do. A da, da, da. That's all I want to say to you. That's got to get the all-time award for a deep lyric right there. Nobody's ever going to top that. Now, these songs, and I'm glad we can chuckle about it. We need to. These may be great songs, but it's lousy theology. You see, romance may be an involuntary emotion, but real love is a deliberate act of the will. We have to choose. We have to make a choice to love somebody. God would never ask us to do something that we had no control over. And yet we're challenged in Scripture to love our spouse. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love, respect your husbands. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, according to Ephesians 5.21. These are things that we have a choice in. We can choose to do these. And so somewhere in the marital relationship, especially when things aren't going that well and marriage is getting difficult and we're not feeling great, we need to just pause. We need to go, whoa, time out. Let's think for a minute about the foundation of our marriage and the foundation is this rock-solid commitment that is the foundation of the house that we're building. I love this story that one of the popular counselors in America tells. It's a true story. He tells about uh, a preacher or a person in the congregation came in one day, and this guy said, well, I'm glad you could meet with me, Pastor. I just wanted to tell you, I don't really love my wife anymore, and, uh, and I, I'm going to divorce her. And the pastor said, well, I'm really sorry to hear that, but you know, you're a follower of Jesus, and I don't think your wife is really giving you a great reason, certainly not a biblical reason for divorce. And, and so, uh, you know, you need to love her. The Bible says husbands love your wives, so you got to love her. The guy got a little upset, and he said, well, you're not, you're not getting it. Um, you see, we haven't been intimate for months. I mean, we sleep in separate bedrooms. There's no romance. There's, there's no emotion there. I mean, it's just dead. And I, I, I'm going to divorce her. Pastor says, well, I'm really sad to hear that. But, you know, as a follower of Christ, you're commanded to love your neighbor. 
And your wife's your closest neighbor right now. I mean, you really, really got to love her. And by now, the guy is ticked off. He says, look, dude, apparently you're not getting it. Let me spell it out for you. I despise the ground this woman walks on. I don't like the way she looks. I don't like the way she talks. I don't like her values. I don't like the way she dresses. I don't like the way she treats people. I hate her guts. Are you getting it, dude? Pastor says, well, I'm really sorry to hear that. But the Bible says, love your enemies. See, there's no way around it. You gotta love her. The guy says, I can't do that. That would be hypocrisy. The pastor says, oh no, that'd be, that would be Christianity. Hypocrisy is not acting contrary to the way you feel. Hypocrisy is not acting contrary to what you believe. And there's a world of difference between the two. We're called to act contrary to the way we feel every single day. And so at times, in our relationship, honestly, we need to just pause and remember the nature of commitment. You know what, we just need to stop at times and just remember that marriage was meant more to make us holy than to make us happy. <laughs> we just need to stop and, and remember that God has loved us through all kinds of crazy things and sin and bad decisions and all kinds of wanderings. And we need to remember the nature of what God has called us to. It's not to say that divorce is never an option. It's not to, this is certainly not a message to create guilt or anything like that. As far as I can tell, at least 50% of the people at Grace have either been directly or very closely affected by divorce, tragic relational situations. So there's no guilt. Everybody got guilt-free zone here. But we just need to stop and be reminded of the nature of commitment. And that's the first thing. Boy, if there was one message I could get across to most Americans, most Americans, as it regards love and relationships, it would probably be that. That if you don't have a foundation of commitment, you might as well just kiss it goodbye right now because you're going to find lots of reasons to bail out. Believe me, lots of reasons to bail. But it really goes beyond that, doesn't it? And if I could just talk to America, if I could just talk to the world about relationships, just to sit down like this, you know what I would say? I, I would want to say, okay, it begins there, but can I tell you something? I've seen a lot of marriages that had that down, particularly a lot of Christian marriages, to be honest with you. They understood the commitment thing. They understood that, that when they said that, they were, they were to take that seriously. They understood what they were saying but the marriage is lousy. Because you see, if you just have the kind of attitude, look, hey babe, I told you at the marriage altar I loved you. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. All right, you'll be the first to know. That's not gonna build a very exciting relationship. So this kind of dynamic, infectious love that we all yearn for and long for has to go beyond the foundation of commitment, and it has to build a house of actions. Somehow, we have to go beyond just the rock-solid commitment, and we have to act in a way that's loving. Now, think about this with me for a moment. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he did what? 
He gave, right? He did something. He acted. And when we see a cross around someone's neck, when we see a, a, a cross, it demonstrates, it reminds us of God's activity of love. He sent his one and only son to die on the cross that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I am so glad. The Bible doesn't tell us about a God who sits in heaven and is committed but does nothing about it. I'm also excited. The Bible doesn't tell us about a God that says, look, I'm committed to you and I have these gooey, ooey feelings for you. But never acts on it, never does anything about it. No, no, no. It's God's activity of love that drew us to him. And humanly speaking, it's much the same. In marriage, sir, it will be your activity of love that continues to draw your wife to you. Ma'am, it will be your activity of love that draws your husband to you and that continues to make that relationship strong. Imagine a woman who comes into my office and says, Pastor, my husband doesn't love me anymore, and she's obviously serious. She's very sad. And I say, what do you mean? She says, well, when we first got married, uh, we had this little place out in the country, you know, and there was a lake back behind the house, and we used to take walks together in the evening, and oh, it was so romantic as we'd stroll together around that lake, and he would sometimes stop and pick a wildflower and kind of tuck it in my hair over my ear, and he would take me in his arms, look deeply in my eyes, and say, I love you. Tear courses down her cheek as she says, he hasn't done that in years. Next day, I have a chance to talk to her husband. I say, well, I heard very sad news yesterday. Your wife said you really don't love her anymore. He is shocked. He sits up. He says, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. That's, that's what she said. He says, Pastor, let me tell you something. For a long time now, my wife has been a seamstress. She is amazing. I've never seen anyone as skilled. She loves it, too. She loves to make things for her friends and family. She gives them away as gifts at weddings and anniversaries and birthdays. I mean, it's just amazing. And people love to get stuff from her because it's so well done and so thoughtful. And so months ago, I gutted a room in our house, and I've been building it back just for her where she could have all of her stuff stuff, sewing machine, all of those materials together in one place. It is perfect for her. I've spared no expense. I've spent weekday evenings and most of my weekends working on that, sweat and toil. Why do you think I did that? I said, I don't know. Because I love her. And I say, you know, it's really a shame that you went to all that time and money and effort to say to your wife you love her when what she really wanted was a walk and a wildflower and three words. Now, don't miss the point. The truth is we each have our own love language. All good marriages understand this. And the activity that conveys love to one does not necessarily convey love to another. So here's the challenge. If we're serious about marriage being the best it can be, we go beyond commitment. We all go beyond to say, look, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be here. You can count on me. We go way beyond that because that's a dull marriage. And we say, I'm going to discover your 
love language and say to you in actions and words, loud and clear, humanly speaking, you're number one in my life. A couple of years ago, we had Dr. Gary Chapman at Grace Fellowship did an amazing marriage seminar. Gary is the author of a book that, as far as I can discover, has a record. This book has a record. It's amazing. I I just still can hardly believe, but it's absolutely true. Gary Chapman wrote the book, The Five Love Languages, back in the early 90s. And guess what? Here's what makes that book unique. There has literally been no book in history that's ever accomplished this. In fact, I don't even think the Holy Bible has probably had this for its, all of its you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, all the centuries it's been around. There have probably been years when this didn't happen even for the Bible, although it's, thank God, the best seller all around the world every year. Here's what happened. Most books have a shelf life about a year or two. The five love languages, get this, is amazing. It has literally sold more copies every year than the previous year. There was one year when it was really close. It barely edged out the previous year, just a few more copies. But it has sold more copies every year than the year before. That's never happened with any other book. Now, why do I tell you that? Because that means that the contents are hitting a niche. The contents of this book are something people are relating to, they're getting. And so what Debbie and I do is we regularly talk about our language of love. We regularly talk about, hey, how can we, how can we bring more vitality into our relationship? We've recommended that book and many others to lots and lots of people. A great book like His Needs, Her Needs by Willard Harley. Do you know the love language of your spouse? Do you know what their primary needs are and how you can say to him or her, I do love you. Humanly speaking, you are number one in my life. Somebody once asked Jack Dempsey's wife what it was like to be married to a boxer. She said, I'm not married to a boxer. I'm married to a champion. And every married person wants their spouse to feel that way about them. It's the activity of love that makes that possible. Now, before I leave that, I just want to remind you that there are dire consequences sometimes if we don't prioritize that in our marriage, if we don't make our marriage a huge priority. There's sometimes some very dire consequences. In fact, I want to read a letter to you where... This is an example of people who just really weren't willing to set the marriage aside as a priority and work on it. And this is one of the saddest letters, I want to warn you, that I've ever read. It's called, Why I Left My Husband. I want to read it to you. My husband is a full-time youth director. He's extremely dedicated and spends 50 and 70 hours a week with young people. I think the reason he's so successful with kids is that he's always available to them always ready to help when they need him. That may be why the attendance has more than doubled in the past year. He really knows how to talk their language. This past year, uh, he would be out two and three nights a week talking with kids until midnight. He's always taking them to camps and ski trips and overnight campouts. If he isn't with kids, he's thinking about them and preparing for his next encounter with them. And if he has any time left after that, he's speaking or attending a conference where he shares with others what God is doing through him. 
When it comes to youth work, my husband has always been 100%. I guess that's why I left him. There isn't much left after 100%. Frankly, I just couldn't compete with God. I say that because my husband has always had a way of reminding me that this was God's work and he must minister where and when God called him. He said young people today desperately needed help and God has called him to help them. When a young person needed him, he had to respond or he would be letting God and the young person down. When I did ask my husband to spend some time with the kids or me, it was always tentative. If I became pushy about it, I was nagging, trying to get him out of God's work, behaving selfishly, or I was revealing a spiritual problem. Honestly, I have never wanted anything but God's will for my husband, but I never could get him to consider that maybe, maybe his family was a part of that will. It didn't matter how many discussions we had about his schedule. He, he would always end with, okay, I'll get out of the ministry if that's what you want. Of course I didn't want that. So we would continue as always until another discussion. You can, only, you can ask for only so long. There's a limit to how long you can be ignored and put off. You threaten to leave without meaning it until you keep the threat. You consider all the unpleasant consequences until they don't seem unpleasant anymore. You decide that nothing could be more unpleasant than being alone, feeling worthless. You finally make up your mind that you're a person with real worth as an individual. You assert your ego and join womanhood again. That's what I did. I wanted to be more than a housekeeper, diaper changer, and sex partner. I wanted to be free from the deep bitterness and guilt that slowly ate at my spiritual and psychological sanity. Deep inside, there was something making me not only dislike my husband, but everything he did or touched. His I love you became meaningless to me because he didn't act like it. His gifts were evidence to me of his guilt because he didn't spend more time with me. His sexual advances were met with a frigidity that frustrated both of us and deepened the gap between us. All I wanted was to feel as though he really wanted to be with me. But no matter how hard I tried, I always felt like I was keeping him from something. He had a way of making me feel guilty because I had forced him to spend his valuable time with the kids and myself. Just once, I wish he would have canceled something for us instead of canceling us. Uh, you don't have to believe this. But I really loved him in his ministry once. I never wanted him to work an eight-to-five job, nor did I expect him to be home every night. I tried to believe every promise he made, hope, honestly hoping things would change, but they never did. All of a sudden, I woke up one day and realized that I had become a terribly bitter person. I not only resented my husband and his work, but I was beginning to despise myself. In desperation to save myself, our children, and I guess even my husband and his ministry, I left him. I don't think he really believed I'd leave him. I guess I never really believed I'd leave him either. But I did. I share that letter for one reason and one reason only, to simply point out the devastation that can occur when even though there is a verbal commitment, 
There is not a prioritization of marriage and the activity of love that conveys, I really do love you. So what about it? What is this love? What is this ingredient? What is this thing that makes relationships vital and exciting and ever-growing and deepening? I believe it does begin with commitment. That's the foundation of the house. But the house we build is a house of actions that appropriately expresses, I do love you with all my heart. But I want to say one final thing as we wrap up today. I want to say that for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that there's a third component that needs to be added here. Because there's an interesting verse in the book of 1 John in your Bible. It's chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what the first portion of that verse says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. You hear that? Love comes from God. Love is of God. And if that love ever begins to wane in your relationship, I would suggest the place to go is to your knees in prayer. Ask God to give you a fresh love for your mate, a love that is second only to your love for him. I've done a lot of weddings in my life, officiate a lot of weddings. There came a point where Debbie and I had to really kind of draw back and back away from that. And, and since 2006, that's not been a huge part of our life at, at all. But up until about 2006, we officiated and we worked together as a team with this. I love working with my wife, Deb, on, on the whole wedding thing. It's just a marvelous experience. We officiated over 150 weddings. It's amazing. So many couples would turn to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Have you read those interesting little verses there in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, where it says, two are better than one? for they have a good return for their labor. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Pity the one who falls and has no one help him up. And it goes on to say, a cord of three strands is not easily, or depending on your translation, not quickly broken. And so, <coughs> excuse me, that becomes a powerful metaphor for what's going on in the Christian marriage relationship. It's not just uh, the man and woman. It, it, it's God at the center of this thing drawing them together. And so this cord of three strands is not easily broken. What part does your relationship with God and growing together with the Lord play in your marriage? You see, if both of you, it's like a triangle, this cord of three strands, if both of you are getting closer to God, then you're getting closer to one another because you're growing in him. And that's why being on the same page spiritually, hear me, I say it with compassion, being on the same page spiritually is so vitally important in a marriage relationship. Is Christ, is Christ at the center? Do you ever just hold hands and maybe silently pray? Or if you dare, do you ever just maybe say a prayer, just have prayer together? Do, 
Do you ever maybe read a book, the same book together, and use that as a growth tool? Do you ever just read Scripture and maybe share what God is teaching? These are just, just suggestions, just suggestions for little disciplines, little practices that God might use to grow both of you in your relationship. Is love a feeling you feel when you feel you're going to feel a feeling you never felt before? Is love two hearts beating as one amid stardust? Is love warm fuzzies by the fireplace in the fall? Nah, I don't think so. Love is an announcement of commitment. It's rock solid, the foundation. Love is an activity that builds a house on that foundation. Love is an acknowledgement of Christ that puts the real life and spirit into that house and makes that house a home. And so here's my closing question to you. Are you growing closer or are you drifting apart? Are you drawing closer or are you drifting apart? And if you honestly, with real sincerity, would have to answer, you know what? I think we're kind of drifting right now. I beg you, I beg you, I implore you to take action. To make your marriage a priority and to don't not end up in the crisis that I see so many couples in where at that point it virtually feels like it's too late. There's so much to overcome. I'm going to close with this. There's a great book by Bob Benson called Laughter in the Walls. And I want to end on this very, very touching and, and positive note. This section in this book uh, says a whole lot about the, the, kind of the seasons of life together in the home. I pass a lot of houses on my way home, Bob Benson writes. Some pretty, some expensive, some inviting. But my heart always skips a beat when I turn down the road and I see my house nestled against the hill. I guess I'm especially proud of that house and the way it looks because I drew the plans myself. It started out large enough for us. Hey, I even had a study. Two teenage boys are now in my study. And it had a guest room. My girls and nine dolls are permanent guests. I had a small room Peg had hoped would be her sewing room the two boys swinging on that Dutch door have claimed that room as their own. So it really doesn't look right now as if I'm much of an architect. But it will get larger again. One by one, they'll go away. They will go away to work. They will go away to college. They will go away to the service and to their own homes. And then there will be room. There will be a guest room. There will be a study and a sewing room for just the two of us. But it won't be empty. Every corner, every room, every nick in the coffee table will be crowded with memories. Memories of picnics, parties, Christmases, bedside vigils, summers, fires, memories of going barefoot, leaving for vacation, cats, Conversations, black eyes, broken arms. Memories of ball games and arguments. Washing dishes and bicycles. Memories of dogs, boat rides. Memories of getting home from vacation. Memories of meals and rabbits and more rabbits and more rabbits. 
and memories of a thousand other things that fill the lives of those who would raise five. And Peg and I will sit quietly by the fire and listen to the laughter in the walls. Dear friend, will you listen to me for one moment? Whatever the state of your relationship may be, I know one thing that you are doing today. That's right. Whatever else you're up to, whatever else you're doing, I know one thing that you're definitely doing in your marital relationship. You are building memories. But the way you live has a whole lot to do with how those memories turn out. I don't know about you, but I want to listen to the laughter in the walls. Father, I ask that you would use your word and your day to transform us. Your truth <laughs> cuts through all of the myths, all of the lies, all of the misconceptions, all of the false expectations that we may bring into our relationships. I pray that you would just humble us today, all of us, and you would just remind us of what healthy relationship is all about. Father, I ask that you would uh, help those who in all sincerity today are a bit desperate. They're really struggling. This is not what they ever wanted, but something has gone sour and they just don't know where to turn. I pray that today you would meet them right where they are, O oh Lord, and give them hope. Give them a sense of clarity and direction and a sense that we can work this out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.